Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, and welcome. My guest this month is a theatre director who has been at the heart of new writing in the UK for the past 40 years. His range is extraordinary, from experimental work in studio spaces to directing Hollywood A-listers in London's West End. His time as artistic director of the Bush Theatre in the 1970s and 80s was a golden period for the West London hotbed of theatrical creativity. And when he was artistic director of Theatre Royal Plymouth, he nurtured and supported a generation of theatre makers, including us, the Idiots, Frantic Assembly and Sean Dale Jones. He remains curious and it is always a pleasure to chew the theatrical fat with him over a glass of wine. So I welcome my dear friend, Simon Stokes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here, Paul. You're very welcome, Simon. I always say this when I have a theatre, a director as a, as a guest. Um, I'm always intrigued uh, by how much acting the director in question might have done in the past. Now, I notice, I don't know if you've ever talked about this, but I noticed that you trained at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. I did. My first question is, what course did you take or study there, Simon? I took two courses. The first was a stage management course, a very, very good one-year course. Uh, and the second was a director's course, also one year. Ah, okay, that's interesting. I will come back to uh, uh, the, the notion of acting and your experience of acting during the podcast but <laughs> i'm also intrigued just to uh, start us off on this is am i right in thinking that for a while one of the main routes into directing was through stage management is that how some directors became directors well i did deliberately um because i didn't know how things worked which is why i went to um the obic schools um there were there were Nowadays, there's lots of assistant directors. That job did not exist back in the day. Uh, so, yes, people came in. They uh, came in sometimes via stage management, more often via acting, uh, even more often via Oxbridge. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Some things never change, Simon. <laughs> exactly. Now, we'll touch on that later, but I always like to go right back to the beginning. So, don't worry if you, uh, I'm not looking for exact memories. I'm just curious as to your very early experiences of theatre. Was that something at school or with your family? Or what, when did you first encounter it and what, what might it have been? Well, Paul, in some ways I was born into it. Oh. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, that's because you say theatre, not a theatre. Um, and uh, my father was a padre. And a padre is a priest in the military, the army in his case. So there were already two branches of theatre immediately thrust upon me. One was the army and one was the church. And so I grew up with all of that ritual and costume and campness. And of course, I was behind the scenes throughout, or well, often behind the scenes. In the church, for instance, I used to sing in the choir in whichever place we were. And therefore, you know, we were part of the cast, so to speak. And it was also um, at a time of history, this is back in the uh, 50s, 60s, really, where things were moving fast and very dramatically. So my father was, we were going around the world closing the empire, basically. And there was a lot going on. 
and a lot of weirdness happening. That's very interesting, and, and um, it's a fantastic phrase. I, I, it will definitely stick with me. It was we were going around the world closing the empire. Yeah, yeah. On one level, sounds like you were closing branches of WH Smiths or Bulworths. <laughs> well, it's, it sort of was a bit like that. I must say, we were in Kenya twice, wow. and the second time it was Independence there. We were in uh, Tripoli and Libya twice, and uh, the British Army got out of that the second time. So my father was deconsecrating the churches as well, or handing them over to whoever uh, the locals. And in Berlin, where we were, it was the Russians who were trying to close us down. Wow. It's interesting when you saw, I remember a very early play that I did. It might not have been a full production. It might have been like a workshop production of a play at the old Soho Poly. Remember the old Soho? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, and it was a play called Missing the Boat. And it was about a family getting out of Aden. Oh, yes. And you suddenly reminded me of it. I, I remember that beginning. It's quite a fascinating play. So when you were, I suppose, moving around, I mean, I'm assuming perhaps you didn't go to school in those places. You were at school in England, I'm assuming, or maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I was at school in the north of England. Yeah. Uh, for Well, yes, from the age of eight. And did you encounter theatre in some form at the school? Well, engine plays, and I was in them. And okay. The main place I encountered, my early part of theatre was actually from my mother, who was a keen amateur. Her? Um, but also in all of these places around the world, she would every year do an nativity play. Quite a big production in the church with choirs. Oh. With, and this was the days of national service, so you could get some you know, very bright, very talented people who basically had to do it because they were told to do it. They volunteered theoretically. And you could get a lot of, you know, we had the Royal Chorus signals doing the communications and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, that was my first, I mean, I came, I think in Catholic camp, I must have been six or something when I first saw my mother's nativity play and it went on for two decades, probably more than that. I didn't really go to a theatre that I can recall until I was probably late teens, repping Colchester where we ended up because... Uh, what did you see? Oh, God knows, rep stuff. When I was, I guess, 18, um, I made a journey down from the north to see Hair, the production of Hair, which opened, I think, in something like 67. You may, no, you won't recall, you're way too young, folks. The Lord Chamberlain's office was abolished, and therefore censorship in the theatre was abolished. Uh, and it's very weird to think that there was such a thing. But every time you put a play on, you have to submit the play to the Lord Chamberlain's office. And if they didn't like, you know, what was in it, swearing or nudity, they would just say, no, you can't do that. They would cross it out and send it back. Very, very strange and, and you know, relatively recent in our history. And the day after that was abolished, Hair opened in the West End coming from New York. And it was, I mean... A fantastic and eye-opening thing. I guess I went three months after it was open. And of course it had famously nudity in it, which for those days was, you know, amazing and and uh, uh, shocking. And it had great songs and it was a hippie musical um, and of its time. And it was very, very different from anything I saw at Colchester Rep. <laughs> Am I right in thinking, I might have got this wrong, but that Kenneth Tynan was involved in some way with Hair, or have I got that wrong, or did he just review it? Do you know, that brings a slight bell 
Um, he was, I think, well, later on, perhaps, or maybe, yes, or maybe even at the time, he was obviously um, dramaturg at, um, I think it was later on, at the National Theatre under Olivier. Yes, but yeah. um, uh, he was, of course, the great the critic, wasn't Exactly. So that's interesting. So you must have been the zoo, well, not must have been, but by the time you reached that age of 18 and you were travelling down to London to see Hare, was theatre becoming something where you thought, oh, maybe I could do this? professionally when when did that did you go to university how, how did that um yes it is something i wanted to do uh, but uh, i was too stupid to get into university via a levels and so on i don't believe that's like... but um but on the other hand i was clever enough to get into oxford because you didn't have to do a levels you just have to go for a chat it's a bit like this book <laughs> but i didn't like it there at all so I left it after a year. I was reading um, Model History. Model History started with the Roman. Uh. I didn't really like it because it was a very, I don't know, old-fashioned yep. place with people I didn't much care for. Uh, so um, I stopped going there and decided to go to drama school to uh. do stage management, as we've discussed. But yes, I wanted to be a, a director. And what, obviously you'd seen here, at that stage when you decided to, to not continue at Oxford and pursue this notion of becoming a director. Were the directors whose work you'd see or you admired at that stage or, or, or not? No, but now you mention it, what I was doing, I was reading um, Penguin had this series of new plays of the uh, late 50s, 60s, really. And that was quite a revolutionary time. I mean... Waiting for Godot, which was a great revolutionary play, was directed, you may remember by, or you won't remember, but you may know by um, Peter Hall in the West End of the Arts. Yes. But there were all sorts of writers. So I was reading all of the worlds. They published anthologies, so you had about four writers to a, to a copy, and then it was a whole series. So I was quite familiar with what was going on and what the influences were from... France, for instance, and um, and other places. The place where things weren't happening was America, weirdly. Europe was, you know, a buzz with all sorts of creativity and all sorts of politics. I suppose, as as well, when you said, you know, largely for your childhood, but certainly as you as you were growing up, a period of big dramatic change happening, you know, yeah, very fast. Exactly. And, you know, I I think everyone thinks, I suppose, of the late sixties and Paris in sixty eight and all of that kind of stuff that was going on. Were you always drawn to new writing? Because I think of you as someone who's fascinated by new theatre and new voices. Was this something, was there at the beginning? Was it never going to be Shakespeare or the classics? It was always newer? Well, it, it, it was, but, it, but not quite as narrowly as, as that. I, I was living in a time, the greatest cultural influence was the Beatles. And they started in, what, 62? Yes. With... Love me do, please please me. Yeah. And if you go all the way through to I don't know, Sergeant Pepper and then the White Album, the amount of change creatively that they were mirroring was extraordinary. Technical change, but also the way in which generations were shifting, the way in which people looked at things. And that was happening sort of everywhere. There were, there were just an, an early indication of that. And uh, and the world was changing. And to be young at that time uh, 
had the possibility of being independent. Nobody really bothered about, you know, getting on the housing ladder or anything, you know, like that. I mean, these were not concerns. I mean, I lived on nothing on my life like a student, frankly. <laughs> and it's, you know, because there were things to do. There was ideas to get your head around. So it was really part of that. And the old plays were, I mean, of course, old plays, this wonderful old place, but in my head and in other people's head, they were part of an older pre-World War generation. That generation was exhausted and wanted a quiet life, quite rightly, as you can imagine. But um, and they wanted everything, you know, calm and and you know each thing in its place. And we didn't want that. You're absolutely right. You know, and the the the, the impact that the Beatles had through that decade of the 60s, charting that via their albums and how they changed and everything. So, um, and we'll come to more specific works in, in a moment, but I'm interested to find yourself at Bristol Old Theatre School. And my previous guest last month was another director of a different generation, Justin Orderbeck, who's now, as you as you know, taken over at Chichester. And I was asking him about his training. He did a yeah. course in directing at Birkbeck. And I'm just curious what your training was like. So what was the, was it very rooted in psychological realism and Stanislavski? How, how, what was the training like then? No, it was mostly stage management. I mean, <laughs> first of all, the stage management training was very good. Yeah. Um, and, and it was a great year. And I learned all about all the things you have to learn, lighting, sound, lying, how to sweep the floor, all that kind of stuff, and how actors were going to teach you all your life. Um, but the director's course actually was made up mostly of telling directors how to uh, deal with the technicalities of theatre, which was useful if you'd just come from Oxbridge. It wasn't useful to me because I'd already done it. So I got to go out uh, and direct tours in in the West Country. Ah, I see. So were these were small shows that were travelling around in a van, that sort of thing? No, only enough I did that. Um, that's how I got my equity card, which you had to have in those days. Uh, travelling with Brian Way's Theatre Centre in a van, as you say, four people. Of course. Yeah. Uh, two shows a day in, uh, around the villages of Cornwall and all the way going up to Warwickshire, I think. And uh, that was fantastic. Three months education. But, and this was sort of like that, but obviously with students um, and drama uh, 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 school, Bristol uh, with students, and and you and we were doing it for like a week or something. And then, so when you come out of Bristol, so you you've done your directing and stage management training. What was the next move? Quite. Uh, oh, and the next move coming out of Bristol, I went to be an ASM at. Uh, for very short periods of time, I went to what was then called the 69 Theatre Company, C-O-O-I-R. Became the Royal Exchange in Manchester. Became the Manchester Royal Exchange. Yes, and it had the mock-up of, of the auditorium as it is now. They built a full-size mock-up there, and we were doing shows in the cathedral. I remember, for instance, Man for All Seasons, I was there for two shows, Man for All Seasons. Bob Hoskins was the common man. Wow. And, wow. Yes. And then I went and did, again, a short burst. Oh, I, before that, I think I had, had been a forest spot operator at uh, Manchester Library. And they had two theatres there, uh, the library and the one out on the edge of town. Can't remember what it's called. And, um, and I 
think I contact. Yeah, uh, no, it wasn't. No, it was a report. No, um, anyway, and I shone a forest spot on the two leads of a, a musical, booth musical, uh, one being uh, my new wife, Teresa Stretchfield, uh, and the other being Alan Rickman. Wow. Just out of Rod. Wow. I know. Of course, I have to ask you, of course, you know, uh, I, the two male actors you mentioned. Now, I was never fortunate enough to see Bob Hoskins on stage, but I think on screen and TV, he certainly for me has was an amazing performer in three things that stick in my mind. One, the BBC Pennies from Heaven, Dennis Potter, in which he was superb. And then, of course, later in The Long Good Friday and, and Mona Lisa. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. When you see someone, presumably he was relatively, not starting out, but I wonder what point of his career was he at? Well, he was getting the bar of the common man, so he was yeah? in a, at the World Exchange, so he was something. James Maxwell was playing the lead there. So, um, oh, I remember seeing him. Who directed it? Casper uh, Vereda, also one of the artistic directors there. Okay. Uh, Swedish. Go back to your memory about Bob Hoskins. Okay, I first saw Bob Hoskins. When I was at drama school oh. in the Bristol Vic studio, the new studio, oh. and uh, because he was part of Ken Campbell's troupe. Wow, of course he was. Yes, yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, driving a six-inch nail up your nose, all of those things, and 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 Bobby's strong arm stuff. You know, you wrap up, you wrap a big rope round your neck, and you have a member of the audience at each end pulling it. You know those those things they used to do. Uh, it was a it was a brilliant show, and that's where I first came across Bob. <laughs> it's interesting when you you mention a theatre of change and a and a reaction to what went before, of which things like Ken Campbell is very much part of that. It's not absolutely necessarily just a writer sitting and writing a play. Yes, but the world of things like the People Show and Ken Campbell, you presumably you were obviously being exposed to that kind of work as well. Uh, yes, and later on I was uh, working with those um, people at the bush. But uh, the, it's worth remembering a people show as I try to remember every day because I'm sure you are being a student of theatre history yeah. um, know that they were the first fringe company in this country. Yeah. But, I mean, but it goes back a while. Uh, I think 66 they played at Better Books, didn't they, at, um, in Charing Cross Road? And... Obviously, as you know, they're they're still playing, and one of their founders, Mark Long, is still yep. leading the company. I think the kind of relentless pursuit of the wild, the crazy, yep. the anarchic, yep. and often the profound. Oh, brilliant! Um, brilliant! Brilliant! As the inspiration. Brilliant company. Um, so, how did you end up getting the job at the Bush? Because that's quite a prestigious gig, you know, to get that. Well, it wasn't then. Oh, really? At that point, it wasn't. No, 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 no. No, because when I went there, Fringe Theatre barely existed. There were a couple, I think, of theatres, pub theatres. There was us and the King's Head, and I think maybe the Orange Tree. That was it. So this kind of area of, and, and we were kind of terribly scorned by the theatrical establishment. I remember an equity councillor calling us grubby thrusters, which I thought was rather good. <laughs> That's brilliant. I, I hope you owned that side. Well, <laughs> Um, so it was, uh, no, it, it wasn't at all a, a, because the bush wasn't in that sense. The bush, it was, uh, it had been going two years, less than two years, probably when I uh, got there. What year did you get there, Simon? Uh, 75. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, there wasn't really much, it, things were just 
beginning in the city was the, the landscape was very different to what it is now. I I got it in the time on at Mauer. When I was at the uh, 69 Theatre Company, now the Royal Exchange, there was a woman who was doing the marketing, I think, there, and she ended up down in London helping out the bush, and they never had a stage manager. And they wanted one because they were taking a Stephen Polyarchoff play to the Edinburgh Festival, and they wanted somebody who would build the set and, you know, figure out sound realizing and all of that. So she called me up and said, would I do that? And I had nothing else on, so I said yes. And the reason that, you know, this wasn't a highly sought-after job is that nobody got paid much. I mean, when I got there, it was £18 a week, I think, in the days when £18 would buy you something. So, you know, I went and stayed, and as a stage manager, I went out to Edinburgh. Polyarkov was just leaving to become the first writer-in-residence at the National Theatre, very young, and he wrote us a farewell play called City Sugar, which actually went to the West End in a not very good transfer. And and then I stayed. And then the management that was there, there was two of them, and they hated each other. They hated each other so much. You know, there wasn't a career in it anyway, let's face it, at these levels of, you know, money and so on. I think we began to get an Arts Council grant in the first year of £4,000 or something. But uh, And they made a pact that they would leave if the other left. <laughs> Um, which they then uh, did, and I said, oh, well, I'll do that then, and I did it. Wow. We had a guy who'd also left Oxford, very good guy, who came in and knew about sums and became the business manager, and he was very good, and the Bush got incorporated into a company with an accountant and lawyers and all of that, and we brought in, uh, Dusty Hughes was brought in, who was at that time a literary critic at Time Out. And he came as your kind of lit- literary manager? No, no, no. He came as the artistic director. So the three of us ran it. Hell. All the time I was there, we had three artistic directors. That's interesting, of course, because with Told by an Idiot, we started with three artistic directors. Yeah. And for, for 20-odd years, we were like that. And I really look back on that formative period of time for us i think we benefited hugely from free imagination i really do I, oh i agree completely that dynamic if it works is a brilliant one yes yeah, so three is a good number because you know you need a vote so you can get two against one <laughs> i mean one of the most successful and you know revolutionary theaters of that time was the citizens theater in glasgow uh-huh. doing this you know very high concept european uh, style theatre in the gobbles of all places. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And they have three artistic directors. One was a director, one was a designer, one was a writer. Yeah. And they were a great role model, I thought, for us in those terms. Yeah. Now, that's a, that's very interesting. You know, yeah. This might be too difficult to answer because obviously you supported, nurtured, developed some extraordinary writers, I'm sure, during that period of time. I, I have two questions, really. I'm not going to pin you down to one particular production. That would be impossible. But what were the writers that you most enjoyed working with during your time at the board? That is an impossible question because they were very different. Um, of course. Okay. And they represented different plays in different ways. A, a huge variety. I mean, and that was the great secret that there was... I was determined, we were all determined to do the best play, to have in the best company, rather than the best play like this. 
you know what I mean? It wasn't, style was not dominating. Yeah. What was dominating was talent. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's always, for me, been the key. Yeah. Uh, the writer I think I, you know, most enjoyed possibly working with Snow Wilson. Wow. Oh. Snow. Yes, who yes. died terribly prematurely just 10 years ago. He was, I mean, uh, extraordinary talent, very underrated now, but uh, and a, a co-founder of Portable Theatre, of course, one of the very early new writing companies. And he was he was a, a polymath, a great guy, beekeeper. <laughs> but there was uh, there were many, 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 and of course we we were taking on new writers all the time. Kevin Elliott was an actor, yeah, uh, now that's also now dead, but. Um, very good actor, and he was in one of my early plays, and we gave him his first commission as a writer. And he became, obviously, with my night in Reg, with Reg and uh, all of that, very, very well known as a writer. But there were not writers like that. But I suppose also, I mean, we're going to move to actors uh, and uh, the director's relationship with the actor shortly, son. Uh, before we uh, do that, we're going to go to our item that we have each month, which is Ask an Idiot. Hello, my name is Colm Gleeson and I'd like to ask Simon what was the biggest professional risk he's ever taken and did it pay off? Great question. Over to you, Simon. <laughs> it is a great question because apart from anything else, the idea of risk, you're working in new plays, uh, it's all a risk, isn't it? Because that is part of the point. And you've obviously got to guard against piling risk on risk on risk. <laughs> the risk is taken um, with the original choices. I think so that, I mean, I've taken lots and lots of different kinds of risks in my time. Uh, I'm going to pick one. Um, after I'd worked at the Bush, the Bush, as I was saying earlier, really started from very little. They'd had some success, but very little. And we moved that. I was there for 12 years, and the Bush became something of a national and even international success. Um, and it started in a very unpromising place in, in Shepherd's Bush on the corner of Goldhawk Road. And Goldhawk Road was a pretty rough place in those days. And Shepherd's Bush Green also was pretty rough. So it wasn't a, you know, a delightful middle-class enclave of any kind. So we did all that. And I left, I left there in the late 80s uh, and worked abroad in different countries. And I had offers. I am not to... Uh, go and uh, run a strand at the Nationals from Peter Hall. He wanted me to do that. Um, BBC wanted me to uh, become a drama producer and bring my contacts there. And I didn't really want to do those things, partially because I was knackered, I mean, run the bus. But I went into a venture, apart from freelancing, I was in a venture with Howard Panther, who eventually founded um, ATG, where I worked with him to bring new plays into the West End, into commercial uh, theatre which possibly wasn't the best idea in the world because you spend all the time not so much finding the new plays, but finding the star who is going to hold the new play up, yeah. um, which is not a very edifying way to go about things, but nevertheless is necessary. And there was a recession also going on in the 90s. So I, um, and it was Howard who said to me at some point, they need someone like you in a place called Plymouth. And I said, okay, and I went down to meet Adrian Vinken. I can't remember what the job title was, creative producer or something like that. And eventually, once I'd got the job, I said, nobody understands what that is. I'm going to be called artistic director, if you don't mind. They had money because they had a big commercial concern. 
uh, going on the large stage. So I, I went there. I chose to go there because I wanted to... It was a sort of sociological experiment. I wanted to see if you could do plays such as you and I do new plays and make them work anywhere. Or do these have to be in, you know, the flesh pots of London or in Birmingham or Manchester? Lewis had absolutely no history of this kind of creative speciality. Uh, but he had a very good uh, theatre, the drum theatre, studio theatre, which you know well. And I thought, when well, it should be possible. And if it is not possible, we're all damned, aren't we? <laughs> In the end. Because, you know, we're going to have to go where the living is easy. So I went there and I applied the various rules and methods that I have for programming. And the mix of programming, which is fundamentally to do your own plays, to have visiting companies who will sign up for a period of time for at least a week, because companies were coming, but it was all one day or one, two days. Nobody could ever make any sense of what was on and what was coming next. And the implication was, and if you come, you have to come next year because you've got to build an audience. It's not me building an audience for you. You've got to build your audience as well. And then we started going into co-production, you know. It's about talent spotting, but it's also about commitment to the talent. It's about um, being as generous as you can be. Not just we weren't generous with the money at all, as you may usually remember, but we were generous certainly with time and alcohol and and the chat and all of that kind of stuff. And we were fairly generous in not looking to see what this play was, but what the run of plays was going to be. What's, what's the play, the one after next, going to be like? So that we would have the benefit also of that development. Mind you, we, that's the question spotting the talent first. I, I can only obviously speak for myself and told by it, but I am very, very glad you took that risk, Simon. <laughs> because I think, you know, the way in which you certainly supported us, and not just us, I've had this conversation with Scott and Steve Frantic. In fact, I remember we were desperate searching for new partners, and Scott and Stephen said, you should talk to Simon at Glimmer because uh, he's really, really supportive of, of all types of new work. And, um, and I think he, that is a big risk, but I think you, you, you gave a platform there. As you say, it's not just about a financial commitment. It's about, a, 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 it's about being able to ring you and chat and talk. And, and uh, yeah, I'm very, very glad that you did that. I've got one final question before I do my quick fire questions because it's been so lovely. I could talk to you all day, but we'll do that in our own time. Yes. Um, obviously, I've mentioned you've mentioned actors, actors who have gone on to be incredibly successful, like Bob Hoskins and Alan Rip. I'm just curious, particularly, I suppose, during your ha Harold Panzer days, that what was it like when you're directing not only big actors, but actors who maybe have very contrasting backgrounds? I'm obviously thinking of John Malkovich and Juliet Stevenson here that you directed. And I'm curious because, for me, they see the, po the polar opposite. I, 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 didn't, I didn't direct Juliet Stevenson. Ah, and um, you did John Malkovich. I did direct uh, John. Yes, very different backgrounds, very different outlooks. Um, and the thing I think I would say mostly, and this is not just about actors, but people should never underestimate cultural difference because everybody thinks they know what it's like, but in different countries, it ain't like that. <laughs> the approach is different. And the obvious difference is that in 
in America, Britain has grown up uh, via the written word very often. I know people like you are the engines of change, and 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 that has happened over uh, quite a long while now. But but uh, we're famous, you know, since Shakespeare's time from the written world. America is fundamentally a spoken world country. They have great writers, of course. But uh, I think from the early days, the speaking and the listening, I mean, more akin to somewhere like South Africa, the Zulus, for instance, who never wrote anything down, but it was all passed down. So um, uh, there are differences. I I think the thing that you have to understand about celebrities, start in fairness, is that they are carrying the weight on their shoulders. Uh, They have got it all to lose and not much to gain. Everybody else is not in that circumstance. Nearly everybody else has got something to gain and not much to lose. So when you look at it like that, you have a great deal more respect for how they need it to work for themselves, for the company. And a good leading actor will lead the company, which John did magnificently. Um, And they have foibles because they have their own experience. they have a lot on their plate. All the marketing is on them. Uh, they have a reputational damage to stare in the face. And that's, I think, what you have to be very well aware of, which I wasn't actually at the time, but um, I was made aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. Simon, I'm going to finish like I always do with eight rapid-fire questions. You just say the first response oh, God. comes into your head. Peter Brook or Peter Hall? Peter Brook. Harold Pinter or Sam Shepard? Sam Shepard. Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay? No, Sauvignon Blanc. Biarritz or Cadiquez? I don't know where the second place is, so I'll go Biarritz. Cadiquez is where Salvador Dali was born. You oh. should go, but... Okay. After you've been to Biarritz. <laughs> Tracy Evan or Paul Arago? Tracy Evan. A Clockwork Orange or Lindsay Anderson's If? Clockwork Orange. Jam Roly Poly or Apple Pie? Oh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I think I'll go Apple Pie. Pros Arch or Theatre in the Round? Um, depends on the play. Of course it does. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> I, I, I came up with a very tough one with the Jam Roly Poly or Apple Pie, and then I finished with a ludicrous question. Apologies. That's Simon, funny. it's been really lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time. And also, you're, it's brilliant to get an insight into different periods of time as well, just socially and creatively. It's been really fascinating. And we'll meet for one of our regular glasses of your Blog very soon. That will be a great pleasure. And this has been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. All the best. Take care. Dear listeners, If you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please spread the word 